This week's episode is brought to you by Prestige Worldwide. Wide. 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 Prestige Worldwide. The first word in entertainment. First word. Management. Financial portfolios. Insurance. Computers. Black leather gloves. Research and development. Putting in the man hours to study the science of what you need. Security. Security. And investors? Possibly you. Prestige Prestige Worldwide. Hi, you've reached George's voicemail, home of Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Please leave us a message. Oh, hey, George, it's Jeff here, just calling because we're supposed to be recording an episode and you're not answering your phone. Um, I guess, you know, no big deal. You can call me later or, you know, or not. I mean, if it's convenient for you i mean that's okay too uh, i'll just do the episode my parts without you and just wait for you to come back again like usual so all right i guess i'm gonna hang up now i'll um talk to you later bye it's time for disney history Circle-rama, or Circle Vision, is considered to have been one of the best theater experiences that ever existed in the entire country, maybe even worldwide. 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 So that was like even better than the live Communicore Weekly show? Um, maybe. That was sort of a theater. It was in the Norway Pavilion. It was a theater in the Norway Pavilion, not a theater in the round, so I guess there are different Uh, experiences. It's more like a VIP room, too. Yeah, something like that. Mm. But anyway, getting back to the Circurama, the craze started actually before Disney showed its first film. See, in 1952, there was This Is Cinerama, which introduced American audiences to the multiple screen movie phenomenon. Now, this was a non-Disney film, and it was a documentary that showed footage from the front of a roller coaster, the cockpit of a plane, and some other dramatic locations, all projected on three connected screens that were partially wrapped around the audience. So, within a few years, a few major motion pictures, including How the West Was Won... How was it uh, won? It's how it was won. That's what you have to worry about. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, it's all timey-wimey. So they were uh, bef- they were actually utilizing the Cinerama, Cinerama, yeah, love saying that, three-screen projection system. Walt Disney saw it in use and fell in love with the idea, but decided, like everything he did, he decided he would do it one better at Disneyland. So shortly after, John Hench, the amazing John Hench, um, was drawing up concept art for uh, Grand Canyon images to be displayed in a round theater. Now, three years after This Is Cinerama, on the day after the park's grand opening, so 
That was July 18th. 18th, yes. So on July 18th, the Disney film A Tour of the West debuted in the new Circarama building near the Tomorrowland entrance. Now instead of filming with three forward-facing cameras, Imagineers mounted 11 16mm cameras to the in a circle on the top of an American Motors car, who also sponsored the attraction. Um, Roger Brogy was known to be the architect of this 360-degree filming process, since he was the one that came up with the idea. Now, it was directed by Disney legend P- Peter Ellenshaw, and mm-hmm. the film took viewers from Beverly Hills all the way to Monument Valley for a 12-minute scenic drive. Wow, you know how quick we could get down to California, uh, get down to Florida in one of those cars? Um, probably not quick at all. Oh, but they said it was a 12-minute drive all the way from Beverly Hills to Monument Valley. I don't know. Maybe it was a TARDIS car. Ooh. Then it wouldn't be an American. Okay. Well, anyway. So, obviously, the film was an instant hit. Uh, Despite having to stand the entire time with no rails to lean against, of course, we are used to that now. Um, Audiences loved being immersed at the center of a 360-degree movie. The seemingly unrelated displays lining the inside of the theater, uh, cars made by American Motors, and fridges made by Kelvinator didn't enhance the experience, but established a tradition of exhibits in the pre- and post-show areas. Plus, it was a free attraction, so no one complained. Free is always better. It's always better. Always. Five years later, a new 360-degree film, the... Uh, 16-minute America the Beautiful expanded the tour to include aerial footage and shots from across the entire country. Now, this one was even more popular than its predecessor. Um, Bell Telephone Systems was actually the sole sponsor this time around, and they added a fun exhibit into the pre- and post-show areas. But late in 1964, the name Circle Vision replaced Circarama as a way to avoid any confusion and legal repercussions from Cinerama. Always thinking. Always thinking. So they did a major remodel of the theater, which began in early 1967 and lasted into June. The attraction's name changed again, this time to Circle Vision 360, or what we're used to. America the Beautiful was also revised to include two minutes of additional footage, and the number of screens went from 11 to 9, uh, but the nine screens were larger than before, taking up uh, about the same amount of real estate. Uh, the entire pre-show was reworked as well. Guests now waited in a room with flags representing all 50 states hanging from the ceiling. Uh, three times per hour, a cast member dressed in full patriotic outfits of red, white, and blue uh, came out and made fun of the other... No, no. They conducted... <laughs> they come and made fun of their own costume, but they probably wouldn't do that. They conducted an Identify the Flags quiz with the guests. Of course, that's nothing like the impromptu United Kingdom Pavilion phone booth Disney trivia. I am super impressed that you said that correctly. I said it right. Wasn't even written down anyway. So uh, uh, they did a quiz with the guests. I don't think anybody won any prizes, though. Uh, and when it came time to view the film, the guests were now able to lean against railings to further enjoy the film. Hence came the name Railings. Lean rails? I was I was waiting to see what kind of clever thing you were yeah, going to come up with. It just it fell apart. Sounded like you were on a train to Clever Town and then you derailed. Yes. Sorry. Yes, I did. Anyway, so Bell withdrew their sponsorship in 1982, and so the theater ran without a sponsor for two years until it closed again in 1984. Um, but they actually reopened it on July 4th, and the theater got a new name again, and this time an all-new film. 
Now, the airline PSA was the new sponsor, and it was called the World Premiere Circle Vision, and it began showing the 8-minute film, All Because Man Wanted to Fly, which was followed by the 21-minute film, American Journeys. Now, later, this longer film alternated with Wonders of China, which was a film imported from Epcot Center, where Wonders played in the morning and then Journeys played in the afternoon. So in, in mid-1989, PSA canceled their sponsorship, but Delta immediately took it over for the next seven years, with both movies staying the same. Uh, finally, on New Year's Day 1996, Delta took off as well, as did the world premiere part of the theater's name. That July, America the Beautiful returned for the theater's final run of films. It closed for good in September 1997, being replaced by the Rocket Rods. <laughs> Sorry, you have to kind of laugh when you say that. Uh, and then by Buzz Lightyear's Astro Blasters. He's a nerd. He's a geek. Because we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. Walt Disney Imagineering, a behind-the-dreams look at making the magic real, was released in 1996 and was truly one of the first books to take us inside the hollow hall of Halls of Imagineering, not the haunted halls. Spooky. That would be scary. But anyway, uh, it, it's not a tell-all, uh, behind-the-scenes type book. And it's more like a this-is-what-imagineers-do-and-have-done book. Uh, clocking in at 192 pages, this one is another must-have for every Disney Park fan. Um, so basically, they asked the question, how would you approach the idea of writing a book about Imagineering? George, and, how would you yes. write a book? about Imagineering. Wow, I don't know, a lot of copying and stuff like that? Because they already wrote the book, so why not just copy it? Oh, fair enough. I thought you were asking me to ask you that question. Oh, no, no, no. They asked. The book team asked that question. Oh, okay. And Sorry. The book The book name is, uh, the book team is made up of some familiar names. Bruce, the late Bruce Gordon, the late David Mumford, Kevin Rafferty, and Randy Webster. Awesome names we've seen before. And they sum it up as follows. Um, rather than a chronological history, the book would try and capture the spirit of Imagineering. What it's like to be here, to walk down our hallways, and most importantly, to be an Imagineer. The story could be told through quotes and anecdotes, as if the reader was really here, looking over our shoulders while we work. Which is actually a pretty hard thing to do. Have you ever tried to work with somebody looking over your shoulder? Yeah, I don't really it's, like it. It's it's kind of disconcerting. Yeah. So. Uh, anyway, the, the the book is phenomenal, so they did a good job with it anyways. But the, the 192 pages are divided into five major chapters that they say cover every aspect of Imagineering. <laughs> Although there was not a section on politics or backstabbing. No, we save that for the tell-all books. We save that for the tell-all books, definitely. Uh, and as expected, the Imagineers make fantastic use of the Imagineering and company archives to share concept artwork, paintings, drawings, sketches, and some draw jaw-dropping art. Uh, not to slight the text in any fashion, but people will be drawn more to the lavish images. And the narrative uh, runs along the same lines as other titles by Bruce Gordon and David Mumford, like The Nickel Tour. You'll not be disappointed, and you'll learn a lot about the process of Imagineering. So the first chapter looks at create creativity and looks at what the Imagineers consider brainstorming. There's some great conceptual artwork, sketches, story ideas, paintings, and more. Um, did you ever hear of the Herb Ryman-designed House of Cheese? Never once in my life. No, not at all. Um, so they do have some concept artwork in there. Uh, the second chapter is the largest and the meatiest. I'm kind of hungry right now. Um, Would you like some Heim bacon? We're going to sell it. Oh, that's true. It's going to be on CommunicorWeekly.com? Yep. 
There you go. Bye bye the pound, people. We need to buy shoes for our kids. Um, so the second chapter is the biggest one, and it's more like as they get more towards the reality of the ride itself, with more concrete ideas, artwork, and concepts. Uh, they also they're paying attention to the whole creative process at this point. That includes anecdotes, storyboards, and scale models that help us envision what the project's going to look like. Uh, the the plans become increasingly more solid in the third chapter. Uh, with the previous section looked at the larger picture. Here we start to see more of the individual details that the Imagineers work on as they emerge. The details, not the Imagineers. That could be weird. Uh, instead of seeing a large painting of a building, we're presented with the architectural sight lines. Uh, we also see a lot of artwork on the ride vehicles and the color schemes. Nothing like scheming colors. The fourth chapter is all about constructing and installing the show sets, the vehicles, the buildings, and everything else they do. The Imagineers delve into their archives to pull construction photos from every era in the Disney parks, from Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Tokyo Disneyland, and Disneyland Paris. It's a fun chapter that doesn't get too technical, but still gives you a good idea of how encompassing the work is when you're an Imagineer and in the field. The final chapter is short but very sweet. The Imagineers dedicate two pages to every park, uh, basically that existed prior to 1996. Uh, there are a few historic photos for each park, but the majority are more current photographs. But you know, since the book's over 15 years old, I guess all the photos are now hysterical. I mean, historical. They're probably hysterical also. They are, with the haircuts, yep. the clothes. <laughs> Look what that guy's wearing. <laughs> I can't believe it. Is that a mullet? Anyway, uh, it, it's it's a really interesting look at what the Imagineers think that de defines the magic of the theme parks. Uh, this is really an important book about the Imagineers. Uh, it, it, you really get an idea of what it's like to work and step inside the environs of the Flower Street uh, for Imagineering Headquarters and see how the Imagineers do their jobs. And if you can find a copy for under $40, go for it. You will not be disappointed. And, and another reason to like this book is that Imagineers hit a copy of it in the single rider queue in Expedition Everest at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Um, you might miss it, but it's been there since 2007, if not since the opening. And it's not the first hidden book but it is a good one, and it does help make the Animal Kingdom closer to a full-day park. You know, I knew you were going to take a jab at the Animal Kingdom there. Every chance you get. Hey, it's, it's you know, if you include the parking lot, it's a full-day park. Because that's a long walk. Ah, you know what? What? Just don't go. And any communal oh. cadets want to come find the book with me, you're welcome to. And then we'll spend the whole day having so much fun in the park. And making fun of me, probably. Yes, exactly. Oh, that's okay. Go okay. read a book, nerd. And uh, speaking, this book is Walt Disney Imagineering, a behind-the-dreams look at making the magic real. Whew. Not quite a long title, but close. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's a debate. Who's gonna win it? So, uh, a lot of people make fun of us, well, for lots of reasons. But one reason in particular is because our Disney debate almost seems to be more like an agreement. Sometimes. That... Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> Disney agreement. Yeah, Disney agreement didn't quite work as well in the jingle. But I think we found one that we might be able to debate. And uh, we're going to look at limited time magic. And, and I know we're only, you know, four months into the year, so we really haven't seen everything Disney's pulled out. But I think we've seen enough examples to know that the limited time magic really is just 
Not a great idea. Not at all. It was a temporary solution to, uh... See, I don't know. I mean, you're saying it's not a good idea. I still think we're too early into the year to really consider it a failure at this point. Um, I'm not going to disagree that some of the offerings so far have been lackluster. However, there have been a few that kind of knocked knocked it out of the park a little bit. Like mm -hmm. uh, Long Last Friends Week. They, you know, they had that at Walt Disney World first, and they... they moved it to uh, Disneyland Resort, and both of those were really popular, bringing back some of the older characters. Yeah, but also the entire month of April was the Strawberry Ear hat that you could buy during the Flower and Garden Festival. So see, that's limited time magic? Yeah, see, it's, it's funny because you say that, and I feel like I'm supposed to know what you're talking about, but obviously they didn't do a good job <laughs> promoting that one because I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, they released a Mickey Mouse hat, you know, with the strawberry, where it looks like you're wearing a strawberry on your head instead of the ears. Can you eat it? No. Then well, yeah, you can, of course. I'm not entirely interested Whether in it's it then. good for you or not is another question. So I, I guess, you know, they, they rolled out this limited time magic to offer things you know maybe for a week or maybe a little bit longer and you know here's my biggest gripe about it and this is this is the crux of my argument as to why it's not a good idea for Walt Disney World fans it's a shame for the Disneyland fans it's pretty amazing what they've been able to do like reopen the Golden Horseshoe and bring back a tribute to it well how are you gonna plan a vacation around that you know, well enough in advance to know that's something you want to do unless you live in the area and you're close by. That's a the, fair point. You know, the, to me, the limited time magic really is for the pass holders and the people that can get there on a regular basis. If you're planning a family vacation, you're just got to take what they give you and and hope it, it doesn't add anything to your vacation except as a surprise. And you have to know about it. And I can guarantee you most guests have no idea what they're seeing, what they're looking at or why you've got these Disney characters they've never seen before walking around the parks. You know, I would I would think that they don't, especially at Disneyland, they don't have a problem bringing their annual pass holders into the resort all the time because, you know, they're there all the time. So I guess it's just adding some more flavoring to, to mix up their regular, you know, Sunday park visit where they do this kind of thing. I don't know, but... Some of the offerings are cool. I mean, not everybody enjoyed the Dapper Dan singing uh, boy bands. But oh, no, I thought that was spectacular. I thought that was pretty neat. And I thought it was something they should have done for the whole year, just as part of their set, do one or two of those songs and add it, and then, you know, do the rest of their set, because it really pulls a different type of people into it. Yeah. And that, it doesn't need to be unlimited time magic. That just needs to be something we're doing for 2013. Yeah, yeah. You know, something like that. But I, I guess, you know, of course I jumped all over you because I like the... <laughs> the one, the one the that Dapper you Dance liked. The kind of cool. But no, I, I liked, I liked the um, uh, bringing back the characters. I thought that's a fantastic idea, but do it more often yeah, and don't maybe announce often. it. We want to see it. And, you know, how are we supposed to be able to, you know, I'm, I'm a 10 to 12 hour drive away. You're going to be in California. You're in California I'm now. I'm going to be a 20 minute drive away. Yeah, so disinherit you as a friend or something like that. Um, <laughs> I guess for me, they did such a big promotion for us Disney fans and spent a lot of money on it. And it's, it's to me, it's in the same vein of that not to be, let's see, he who shall not be named 
flying thing above New Fantasyland last year in November. I don't know what you're talking about, and I refuse to acknowledge it. Good. Say, there's something we won't acknowledge that flew over New Fantasyland only for a select group of individuals. Uh, Not that we're bitter, it's just it should have been spectacular. And the people they flew that thing for didn't have any clue what was going on with it. And it sort of was an experiment. That was like their first look at limited time magic. I think it's the first thing they called limited time magic. Yeah. So it was that flying thing. I, I, I'm still in the camp of that. It's still early, too early to call it. And I really want to see how the rest of the year plays out. And I think, obviously, I'll have a little different opinion of it um, because I'm at Disneyland all the time. So I'll be able to see it firsthand, you know, almost every day. So well, won't be the limited time magic can meet Jeff Heimbach. Uh, yeah, but it's it's limited time magic extended for the rest of my life. <laughs> to be there? Yeah. <laughs> Rub it. Well, I mean, I think we both have to agree that limited time magic is a horrible name. Yeah, I think we a, we I think a, we agree on that point of yeah, the Disney debate, obviously. Standpoint. You know, and, and, I, and I guess where it runs into the debate is we sort of agree. So again, it's <sighs> not really a debate, is it? We think this is fantastic at Disneyland because they've got a million pass holders that are there all the time. At Walt Disney World, which is so large and they've got so many parks and so many people that are visiting that haven't been in a year, years or aren't, you know, Disney nerds like us, have no idea what it is and they can't appreciate it for what it is. So I think this will be a good one to come back to maybe at the end of the year and kind of see how it developed throughout the year and if anything changed and then we'll see if we agree or disagree on its failure or success. So we'll have to have somebody uh, listening remind us to do this because we'll forget. I'll totally forget. Yeah, we'll totally forget because you'll be having so much fun at Disneyland all the time. I'll I'll set an alarm and we'll see if I remember or if I just ignore it. Or if we're even still doing the show then. Oh gosh, who knows? That's right. You might be move out to Hollywood and get discovered. That's true. By by I don't know. I don't know who's out there that can discover me. Mickey Mouse. (laughs) We'll go with that. Anyway, somebody please remind us in like five months to do this again. Okay? Yeah, thanks. Okay, thanks. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. (laughs) The camels sitting out front of the magic carpets of Aladdin in Adventureland and the Magic Kingdom were originally used for a parade called Aladdin's Royal Caravan at Disney's Hollywood Studios in 1993. Actually, technically, it would be Disney MGM Studios in 1993, but that's okay. Are we allowed to say that one? Uh, I don't know, but we're, if, Contractually? We get, if we get sued, then probably well, not. Well, for the nomenclature, we're, we're referring to a historic. Yes, yeah, we'll go with that. So, okay. Anyway, after the parade ended, they were actually used for a short while at the Soundstage restaurant, also at Disney's Hollywood Studios slash Disney MGM Studios, when mm. it took on an Aladdin theme. Now, of course, they can be found speeding on unsuspecting guests daily in Adventureland. Always on me, every single time. I mean, look at the ground. You're going to see the puddle of water. It doesn't matter. Avoid it. Even even when we're walking out at like 1 o'clock in the morning, I feel like I always get hit oh, by that Oh, that's true. That, that did do that once, didn't it? Yeah. It did, and it was annoying. And I hated yeah. it because it was cold, and it made me cold. And then we walked through the snow, and the snow sort of froze. No, <laughs> it did freeze, too. It just sort of made you all soapy. Well, I, yeah, I had the soap and then the, the camel water, so it was like I took a bath on the Magic Kingdom. Huh. Somehow I think that's not limited time magic. No, not at all. Not at all. So, well, anyway, thank you guys so much for watching 
and listening to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Be sure to leave us a comment and rate us on the iTunes. Yep. Always feel free to email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicoreweekly. Yep. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Imaginerding and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And as a reminder, that's where the snark lives. Most of it. Anyways, we try. <laughs> Instead of limited time snark, it's all the time snark. Yeah, we're full time snark on Twitter. So, anyways, for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Big Bocker. <laughs> <laughs>